When I was an army chaplain, my soldiers asked me all kinds of questions about God, life, relationships, the Bible, and answered them as best I could. They also called me Padre. Welcome to the Dear Padre podcast. A reading from the book of Isaiah. All who make idols are nothing, and the things they delight in them delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know, and so they will be put to shame. Who would fashion a god or cast an image that can do no good? Look, all its devotees shall be put to shame. The artisans too are merely human. Let them all assemble, let them stand stand up. They shall be terrified, they shall all be put to shame. The ironsmith fashions it and works it over the coals, shaping it with hammers and forging it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line, marks it out with a stylus, fashions it with planes and marks it with a compass. He makes it in human form with human beauty to be set up in a shrine. He cuts down cedars or chooses a home tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it can be used as fuel. Part of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire and makes bread. Then he makes a god and worships it, makes a carved image and bows down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over this half, he roasts meat, eats it, and is satisfied. He also warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I can feel the fire. The rest of it, he makes into a god, his idol, bows down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Save me, for you are my god. They do not know, nor do they comprehend, for their eyes are shut, so that they cannot see, and their minds as well so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. Now I shall make the rest of it. Shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded mind has led him astray. And he cannot save himself or say, is not this the thing in my right hand, a fraud? The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The rise of monotheism in the ancient world is a phenomena that happens in a number of places, but specifically with the people of God, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and with other people before that as well. Monotheism, as expressed in the Bible, it's really a bad way to talk about it. Monotheism, one God, mono being one. Polytheism, poly, many, uh, for many gods or goddesses. Um, And then other forms of adding theisms like henotheism, pantheism, panentheism, 
um, all these other ways of talking about how people have seen their view of God are all just people in the modern world kind of looking back and assuming we know what they were thinking when they did the stuff that they did. However, throughout Scripture, we can see a pretty consistent message of uh, the idea that God should not be, there should be no graven images made of God. This is in the Ten Commandments. It is in the, uh, it is in also the, um, the assumption with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that um, God came to them and spoke to them and even seemed to appear in some strange ways to Abraham and others um, through angelic visitors, through the smoking pot that passes through the halves of the sacrifice when God makes a covenant with Abraham, other sort of visible appearances of God. But the, uh, the command that, that God is one and there should be no graven images made of God really comes through the covenant that God made with Moses and God's people at Mount Sinai. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Again, monotheism as expressed in the Bible, does not believe or does not say that there are just, there's just one God. It just says there's only one God you should worship. The Bible is consistent that there are lots of gods and goddesses running around out there, and they are all understood to be lots of different things and entities. Some are kings. Remember the Nebuchadnezzar sets up a giant statue, golden statue of himself, worship the statue. So he is very clearly a person that you could watch and see and walk around the palace, but he's also got a statue of himself that you're supposed to worship because kings, the divine right of kings, that kings are descended from the gods in some way, is a belief that some people still hold in the modern world. When it comes to the kings of England, other royal families in Europe, and the uh, royal family in Japan and other places that have royal families often have this kind of hint that they are descended from the, from the gods or from God. And uh, that was kind of hard to pull together in a Protestant world of, of the King of England, but they were able to do it. One of the ways that the Kings of England would demonstrate this divine descent from the, from the gods, from God is through uh, Touching for the king's evil, a practice that was done, I think, up until William the, William the Fourth, William the Third. I'm not sure the last king of England who did it, but if you had scrofula, medical historians can tell you what that is. I'm not exactly sure what scrofula is. I think it's tuberculosis or something similar to that. Um, you could go, and the king would touch you, and you'd be healed because kings had that healing power, which is sort of like God's power flowing through them, touching for the king's evil, as they called it. And that was practiced uh, for a long time. I forget the last king who did it, but um, you could look Google that one. But this idea that, um, that these kings are gods, and then this idea that there are entities in the universe that are powerful, that's certainly present in all the stories in the Bible, the patriarchs' wives are famous for having gods and goddesses, votive deities, little clay or other materials, 
sculptures that they are hiding from their husbands. Um, so even in that time, this idea that there's only one God is not what they really understood. They understood that there was one God that they should really worship and one God that they could trust and one God they could follow. His name is Yahweh. He is revealed at the burning bush to Moses, but he's revealed in other ways long before that to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and lots of other people too that we don't know their stories. Every once in a while, a mysterious character will appear in the stories of um, the patriarchs where they will... um, they will encounter someone who worships the one true and living God, Melchizedek with Abraham after his military victory, Moses marrying the daughter of the priest of Midian, whoever that happens to be, um, or what kind of priesthood that was. Again, these characters who kind of show up and are very clearly worshiping the same God as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so... The idea of monotheism was not that there are many gods, but that there, that, that there is only one God, but that there are many gods, but only one that you should trust. And this God was a universal God. There's a story in the book of Kings or Samuel, I think it's in Kings or Chronicles, probably in Kings, where the enemy um, <clears throat> encounters the Israelite army and they are fighting in the plains and then the battle goes up to the hills or they're strategic. Strat- strategizing, they're planning the battle. And they say, well, let's fight him in the hills or we should fight him in the plain. And they say, the God of the, these, this people is both the God of the hills and the God of the plains. In normal warfare, you would invoke the God or goddess of the area that you were fighting in for help because every area, little area had a different God or goddess. And the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob can go both places, up in the hills and in the plains, and go anywhere God wants to go, because this universal nature of God is the thing that is important about the way the people of God worship. That God, that all the peoples of the earth should worship this God, is a consistent theme throughout Scripture. Not through coercion, but through the light. The light that goes to the Gentiles. The season of Epiphany is a time where Christians remember that some of the first people that worshiped Jesus were not Jewish people. They were not of the house of David. They were not of the Jesus' ethnic and religious family. They were from far, far away. And this, this seed that was planted by these, these magi visiting from far away, these Gentiles, showed that eventually the story of Jesus would go outside Jesus' own Jewish community into the rest of the world. And we are the inheritors of that. Um, We benefit from that greatly as Christians who are probably not many of us of Jewish descent. We were part of the nations of the world that were drawn to the light of God. And this was always the plan of God all throughout the Old Testament. Um, It said that nations will stream to thy light and kings to the brightness of thy dawning, that the whole world would come to Jerusalem um, ultimately to worship the one true and living God. But what of all these other gods? What are they? Uh, St. Paul, in his letters, said that behind every idol is a demon. I mean, he just kind of says it. Um, And then other times he says, there's nothing behind the idols. There's just nothing. It's just, you know, concocted. This comes up in the huge controversy in the early church on meat offered to idols. 
when most of the meat that is sold in Corinth, in this very Roman, Greek, pagan, whatever we call it, city, cosmopolitan city that is not Christian, it's not Jewish, there are temples everywhere to all sorts of different gods and goddesses, and in each of the temple they have a little barbecue. They bring in an animal, they um, slaughter the animal ritually, and then there's prayers. Usually the priesthood of the, the Roman priesthood was not a not always a specific vocation, but the, the senators and leaders of that community would be the priests. Julius Caesar is a priest um, of his of uh, whatever priesthood he held. He held a number of them. And they would preside at the feast, and then the food would be distributed down from the noble people down to the commoners and down to the enslaved people as well. And this sacrifice of, of meat of an animal would be divided among the people. And so the very eating of food and meat, which you need to sustain life, was associated with this devotion to these idols, to these um, gods and goddesses that were not the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Um, even the term God, when we use it, we have to be really clear what God we're talking about. Um, there's a lot of them out there. And so this Christians, when they would go to the market to buy the food, buy meat for their meals, they would find that, um, that this, this meat offered to idols was for sale. They would sell the rest that they didn't eat at the sacrifice. And it was a way for temples to make money. Um, it was certainly a, a way to consolidate the resources of a community. Most ancient communities would have one central oven where they baked all the bread or just a couple ovens where they baked all the bread. Not every house would have a big oven to bake bread in. And they would certainly have, you know, communal barbecues, or, um, grills that they would feed, feed themselves with. And so the, the question was, could a Christian eat meat off, that was offered to idols, that was involved in the, the ritual worship to false gods and goddesses? Is that okay to do? Are you participating in the worship of those false gods are you leaving your one true love of the love of God to, to eat that meat? Or are you just buying meat? And Paul basically says, you're just buying meat when you buy the meat offered to idols. But there are many people among us, Christians, who have a sensitive conscience on these things. And if we are in communion with someone with a sensitive conscience, it'd be better not to eat meat at all than to offend a person's conscience, to do it in front of them, or to talk about it, or even to do it, and then know that you do it, um, is a great, of greater concern than whether the meat that you buy at the temple marketplace is really a participation in that worship of the false god and goddess. And these were big questions for people throughout the whole history of, of the Bible, Old and New Testament. And here, in this place where Isaiah is, they are encountering all the religions of the world, the world before the conquest of Jerusalem is very cosmopolitan in many ways. Jewish people of Isaiah's day would have known how a lot of other groups function and religions function. And so there, there is always idols around. The reforms of King Josiah and other kings of Israel that, um, that destroyed idols and burned them and knocked down the high places and sacred temples um, was a sort of a one-and-done thing. It happened sporadically and occasionally. But ultimately, 
most of the world of this time, and archaeology backs this up, was full of all sorts of pagan, what we would call pagan temples. Pagan comes from a um, Latin, Latin terms of um, the, the, the country dwellers, urbani, the urban people, the city people, and the pagani, the, the, the people out in the hills. And Christianity was an urban religion first, and then it eventually spread to the countryside. So um, you can see how Christianity was seen as a city thing, and, um, and then uh, it moved out to the country. You can still see this today in the Episcopal Church. We do well in cities. We do well near Whole Foods and places like that. We don't do so well out in the middle of the country um, where there's less of those, um, those resources. Um, certainly the population and numbers and demographics of our church indicate that. Um, not to say there aren't Episcopalians out in the countryside, but there's a lot less of them. Um, and so when Isaiah denounces in this satire, it's some pretty good satire. Um, I think Melanie captured the humor of it, that this is ridiculous. You make an idol, you make, use the wood to make an idol, and then you take the rest of the scraps of the wood and you burn it and you cook your food and you're fed. Um, all this is the ridiculousness that the person, a, per, a human being, is making this idol and then worshiping it. Um, that that is not who God is. God is not someone you can make for yourself. Ultimately, the idea of idol worship um, is to get you stuff, to get stuff for you. Um, that these idols, these gods and goddesses were sort of trinket dispensing machines. The, the most notable and powerful God in the time of the Bible, for most of the history of the Bible, <clears throat> is the Baal or Baal. Elijah has huge encounters with the prophets of Baal. Baal, however you say it, um, is fine. This God or God, this God that um, oversaw the crops, the, the grain harvest, the fertility rites that ensured an abundant harvest. This was life or death for people. And you can imagine in that time, people would do whatever it took to, to make sure they had enough to eat. And once they had done that, then they wanted other stuff. And all these other gods and goddesses would, were there to grant them certain things that they kind of needed. You can see this in, in a lot of places in the world today. You can see this in secular society as well that we hold. There are certain things we do that we think will give us the kind of stuff that we want. Um, Christians today often use the idea of an idol as a metaphor for something that you put in the place of God. Um, and I think that's a helpful way to look at this, what he's talking about, that all the stuff that we think will make our lives meaningful ultimately don't. Now, I love my rollerblades, and I went rollerblading last night for 16 miles. It was a lot of fun. I had a great time. And without those skates which they cost money, not, not like as much as a car or anything, but, you know, um, I'm really thankful for them. They're, they're a physical item, a product you can buy that gives me a lot of happiness. But ultimately, I always have to remember that that is, not, that is something that could come or go in my life. The happiness I get from skating could come or go, and I would still have to learn how to be happy. I would still have to, to, to maintain my own um, integrity as a person and joy and um, faithfulness to God in that way, um, even if that were to go away. 
that joy, um, the fact that I could make an idol out of my skates to put those in front of other things, um, it's always there. But again, this is how we as Christian Americans often see the idea of idolatry. This is materialism, things that we buy or make to give us something or happiness. But I think it's far more um, invasive than that. I think uh, for a lot of people in the modern world, the family is an idol, sort of a vision of a perfect family that is an idol in that it does not, is not real. It's not real for anybody. I've never met anybody that had a perfect family. But when you see a picture of, of a perfect family or you think of a family that you know that you think is perfect or better than you or something like that, um, ultimately, um, we are projecting on that picture or that image um, something that is not true, that is false. And that is where I think idolatry often lives. A certain kind of life, a certain job, a certain whatever it is that we've projected our needs upon and then sort of looked at that image hoping that that can happen to us. Um, this is really strong for young people today. We live in a very visual culture. I think of the differences between my own children's dating life and my own when I was, when I was their age um, in that the, the people that they know in their school settings and places like that, um, they've seen pictures of them numerous times, sometimes numerous times a day. They will see a picture um, on Instagram or really Instagram, they don't use Facebook, um, uh, of, of their friends, of, of people they like or want to date or something. So they're seeing a lot of pictures of people that they know. Um, and they're seeing them in real life too, normally. Um, and I'm just... I'm painting with a broad brush here. This is not like anything about my kids, really. It's just sort of my perceptions of them and, and how I see their, their lives. Um, unlike when I was their age, if you wanted to get a picture of a woman that you liked when I was in college, that was a pretty big deal for someone to like give you a picture. Or you'd have to take a picture at a big group event, and there was like one picture of them, you know, from a group something, or you know, or you look them up in the yearbook. That's where Facebook originated. Facebook originated as a bunch of guys in a dormitory trying to figure out who the, what the names of the women in the women's dormitory were to, um, to date so they could know who they were. Um, so the origins of Facebook and all social media comes from this need to sort of see a picture of somebody to identify them when you didn't see them in real life. And uh, that's really changed a lot of the ways we perceive each other. And the pressure on young people and old people too, like me, um, to sort of look a certain way or have a certain image is increased in this very visual age that we live in. The quest for perfection. We see an image of um, a person and we say, I could be that, I could do that, that could be me, or that should be me. And if it's not, then I'm going to be sad and depressed and maybe do whatever it takes to get there. Um, you know, I think... Um, this, this kind of idolatry, and it's not really a, I don't even think it's that sinful or anything. It's just, it's just the nature of being human. Um, to say I will do things to my body to make them, make myself conform to this image that I see. Certainly eating disorders and other maladies and, and um, illnesses that people suffer. And I've suffered from eating disorder before in my life. 
trying to conform my life to a certain image of what is good and acceptable um, or what is so that I can be loved and lovable. Um, those sort of um, those sort of struggles that we all have or, or have had or many of us have or people have had are usually image-based. And that image, the word for idol in the Bible is just the word for image. It's not a distinction between an image, a picture of your family, uh, a picture of your mom or dad, or, a, or an idol of Asherah or Baal or one of these other gods. That, the word is the same. An image is an image. Um, and it is what we do with that image that makes the difference between whether it's an idol, the way we think of that term today, or whether it's just an image. Um, and those are all like subtle and they all play together. And we can see, um, see how, how, how the evil of those demons that are sometimes behind images, false images, um, can get into our soul. I think of a young woman in my in the previous church, not the last one I was in, but um, who died by suicide. And her sort of, there's often done an aut- autopsy done for a suicide victim. Um, and in that grief and sadness, it was um, early Instagram um, images of her, of her friends, um, perceiving them as being more successful, prettier, happier, that were, were part of her, um, part of that awful, horrific event of her death. And I think of her often, um, and I think of her parents often, and how that young people are under this pressure to be perfect, and we as older people, if you're an older person than a younger person here, we need to remind them that um, they are lovable just as they are, that nobody is perfect, that all the images we see around us are, are carefully crafted and, and curated and meant to be perfect or present an image of perfection, but it's all an illusion. Um, ultimately, people are people. We are all imperfect people. We're all just people. And, and we have to remind younger people of that, that, um, that, that, that we have also been seduced by those images, that we also have been fooled by those images. We don't, we don't um, help young people by shaming them and telling them that they're stupid or telling them that, that they shouldn't believe everything they see on the internet or something like that. We need to help young people by being vulnerable to talk about our own insecurities, our own insecurities around our image that we experience throughout our lives. We need to remember what it was like for us to perceive other people as having more than us and that, that insecurity that came from that and the things we did to sort of overcome that or whatever it is. It's really our own vulnerability that we connect with younger people on. It's not by sort of telling them that they're stupid or dumb or in some way um, fooled by all this modern technology or something. We too were fooled by the technology of our day. Um, and we must remember that when we, when we talk to them and share with them and really listen to them about these kinds of things. So the satire is real. <clears throat> Isaiah could write this about all images in the modern world. Every magazine cover picture, every, um, every post on Instagram by an influencer, all of that um, could be easily satirized by Isaiah. And I think that is a a timely reminder for me and for all of us that um, we need to remind each other, and especially young people, of that image problem. Amen. 
Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Today is January 17th, and the day the church remembers Antony, or Anthony, however you would like to say it is fine. Antony is how he's described here. Um, an abbot, which means the father of a monastery or parent of a monastery, leader of a monastery in Egypt. In the third century, many young men turned away from the corrupt and decadent society of the time, really paralleling the Isaiah reading today, um, and went to live in deserts or on the mountains in solitude, fasting, and prayer. Many of them did this because of Antony of Egypt. He was an outstanding example of this movement. Um, And he wasn't just a recluse. He was the founder of Christian monasticism in many ways, one of the founders. And he wrote a rule for anchorites or someone that dwells alone. Um, Historians will tell you that um, most of the desert fathers, as they're called, people that went out to live in the desert by themselves, only did it for a very short time. There are some that did it for a really long time. Most of them did it for a very short time, um, not like 30, 40 years or something. Some of them was very short. And like today, there were people that did it for a month and then wrote a memoir about it, um, and others that did it for longer. Um, but so again, we, we must not compare ourselves to these people and say, oh, we have no self-discipline or we're living in air conditioning, so... We really can't have a spiritual life or something like that. But these were early examples of Christians who um, had a vision of the kingdom in this way. Antony's parents were Christians. He grew up to be a quiet, devout, and meditative person. When his parents died, he and his younger sister were left to care for a sizable estate. So again, this riches to rags trajectory of Christianity. Six months later in church, he heard... The reading about the rich young ruler whom Christ advised to sell all he had and give to the poor. Antony at once gave his land to the villagers and sold most of his goods, giving the proceeds to the poor. It's doing what Jesus said. Later, after meditating on Christ's bidding, do not be anxious about tomorrow. He sold what remained of his possessions, placed his sister in a house of maidens, which apparently was some sort of dormitory living situation, maybe mon- monastic community of nuns, and became an anchorite or a solitary ascetic. Um, Athanasius, who wrote the Athanasian Creed or wrote part of it, and also a bishop, knew Anthony personally, and he writes that he spent his days praying, reading, and doing manual labor. For a time, he was tormented by demons in various guises. He resisted, and the demons fled. Moving to the mountain across the Nile from his village, Antony dwelt alone for 20 years. In 305, he left his cave and founded a monastery. Mona, mana, um, one, kind of like monotheism, um, was a series of cells 
Both a prison cell and a monastic cell have a similar origin, um, except one is voluntary, but also has um, implications of um, sort of being shut away, that a, the same as a, that a prison cell has, although that's not voluntary. Um, and these cells were inhabited by ascetics living under his rule, the rule that he wrote. A rule is a, simply a list of rules, how the community is governed, how they pray, how they eat, all those things. Um, Athanasius writes of these, this colony, their cells, like tents, were filled with singing, fasting, and praying, and working. They might give alms and have love and peace with one another. These were places of giving and healing, not just um, living. We sometimes dream of being a monk, and we think of sort of the solitary nature of it, um, or a nun, and being cloistered and away from people. But these were places where lots of people were around, and they were being encountered um, and cared for in many ways. Antony visits Alexandria first in 321 to encourage the suffering martyrdom under Emperor Maxententius, later in 355 to combat the Arians by preaching, conversions, and the working of miracles. Most of his days were spent on the mountain with his disciple Macarius. Um, Antony willed his goatskin tunic, his only clothing, and a cloak to Athanasius, who said of him, He was like a physician given by God to Egypt, for who met him grieving and did not go away rejoicing? Who came full of anger and was not turned to kindness? What monk who had grown slack was not strengthened by coming to him? Who came troubled by doubts and failed to gain peace of mind? Thankful for the people like Antony in my life who I can go to, and they can sort of reorient me to um, what I really believe and know with my anger, with my slackness, with all those, with my troubled doubts, um, as Athanasius said, of those that came to Antony. Um, on, the inside, on the back flap of my prayer book, which is not here, it is in the bin over there, um, years ago when I got it, 2003 or 4, 4, 5, I forget when, um, I... I glued in the back flap the painting of Michelangelo of Antony and his demons. Um, this is a, a, a painting that is a Texan painting now. I'm going to get an image of it for you. It is in the uh, museum in Fort Worth, the art museum in um, Fort Worth, Texas, uh, the Kimball Museum, I believe. It's a small painting. It's not very large, but it was um, painted by, um, called The Torment of St. Anthony, painted by Michelangelo um, when he was a teenager, when he was maybe 12 or 13. So it reflects sort of the um, kind of stuff that young people are into perhaps, uh, the, the combat of Antony's life. There he is um, in his black robe with his long beard being tormented by some really terrible-looking creatures. Um, and this is the struggle of Antony's life. 
And I've always felt that um, being a priest is the easiest job in the world for me. I've always wanted to do this, and I've done it since I was a teenager to one degree or another in various permutations of clerical and um, church work. But um, what's hard for me is life. And I think that was true for Anthony as well. Um, he was good at being, being a Christian monk and leader and things like that, but it was the inner struggle, the personal struggle of his life, the stuff that happened inside him that is personified by the, this demonic, these demonic attacks. But um, to me, I put that in the back flap of my prayer book because I knew that would be my struggle um, as a priest too. It wouldn't be necessarily um, the job itself, but it would be me and the stuff that I dealt with in my inner life with God and with the devil and with the demons of this world. So um, I hope you're going to be encouraged by that. This is what Anthony was up against, and this is what you are up against too in a lot of ways some days. Some days are better than others. Some days there's only two or three pulling pulling on him. (laughs) But ultimately, Anthony and you and me um, find our victory in Christ who defeated the powers of this world that seek to draw us away from the love of God. Anthony won that fight through Jesus Christ's righteousness, and you will win it too, um, because ultimately the fight is already over. It's just the, um, there are still some remaining things flying around and pulling on our robes. Amen. Let us pray. O God, by your Holy Spirit, you enabled your servant Antony to withstand the temptations of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Give us grace with pure hearts and minds to follow you, the only God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah and the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood was not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail you against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you, whatever binding you on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth, you will be loosed in heaven. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. St. Peter, we remember this moment in time, which makes it into Matthew's gospel in such a powerful way. It's a pretty um, simple story in the life of Jesus and the life of the gospels, but it has a profound ripple effect throughout time and space and eternity. It happens in Caesarea Philippi, or Philippi, as we would say it, um, this city dedicated to Philip, but also to Peter, to uh, Caesar, 
So here we have this very Roman area, also an area where Hellenistic culture is really strong and powerful. Hellenistic culture is that Jewish embrace of Greek philosophy, art, like theaters and clothing and lots of other things, and the language itself. In some ways, the New Testament is a product of Hellenistic endeavor. Um, the, the culture of Greece that was carried throughout the world by Alexander the Great uh, was still there hundreds of years later, going strong. Jesus certainly speaks Greek, as do his disciples. They interact with Pilate, as Jesus in his trial, and others interact in Greek, even though probably Aramaic is a language that they would have grown up speaking and certainly speak throughout the Gospels. The Gospels, since they're written a little bit after the events, will often translate for us uh, Aramaic words into Greek to just tell us. One of the greatest moments of this is Jesus on the cross, where he says, Ele, Ele, Lama Sabachthani, which is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The writer of that text was there and wants you to know what it sounded like that Jesus is speaking in his mother tongue, the tongue that Mary spoke first to him, probably, although we weren't there, we don't have any record of that. But that moment is captured in that Aramaic phrase, and then because most of the readers may not be speaking Aramaic at that point, as this gospel is going into all the world, they translate it into Greek, and we translate it into English, because that's the language we use mostly, at least that's what we use here in this, in this church the most. Although we sprinkle other languages in too, on a Sunday morning you'll probably hear a little bit of Greek, Kyrie eleison, Christe eleison, Kyrie eleison, and maybe a little Spanish in the Anima Christi that Daniel leads us in. But here in this very Hellenistic or Greek city that is also a Roman city named for Caesar to promote his cult in the world and his empire, this question comes up of who do people say the Son of Man is? It's never a good idea to ask people this, um, unless you're ready for the answer. Who am I? What am I? What do you think of me? These are not um, safe questions to ask, especially if we want an honest answer. People might really give us direct feedback, or they might just say what we want, what they think we want them to say. But Jesus wants to know what people are saying. Um, it does matter what people say, this, these anonymous people, sort of the um, passive-aggressive people are saying, or they are saying, or everyone's saying, well, who's saying that? Oh, just people. I don't want to say. And it really doesn't matter what people are saying, because um, they're saying all kinds of things, according to this. John the Baptist. How could Jesus be John the Baptist? We remember that... Um, People in the ancient world didn't really, couldn't always prove right away um, if a person couldn't be in two places at once. Um, there wasn't live television. There wasn't an ability to find out instantly where a person was. 
And so um, the stories of John the Baptist being executed um, may have reached everybody or may not have. Um, and here Jesus is John the Baptist for some people. For others, he's Elijah. Elijah, this character, this prophet who is taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire, doesn't die. So he could come back at any moment to inaugurate the new age at the Passover dinner. Um, a seat is left for Eliyahu Hanavi, Elijah the prophet. And there's a little song that goes with that too that is still sung today by Jewish people for Elijah to return. Others say it's Elijah. Jesus is like Elijah in many ways. He is confronting the powers of this world. He is speaking the truth. Um, he's a prophet. And still others say Jeremiah. Strange that Jeremiah would come into this. Um, he's not as miraculous of a figure. Only bad things happen to Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, as he's called. He's put into a mud pit for a really long time, and they pull him out with a rope eventually, putting a rope around under his arms and dragging him up because he's so weak. Um, that's the miracle of Jeremiah. Nothing else really good happens to Jeremiah other than that rescue. Jeremiah is not someone who performs really miracles the, the, we, the way we would think of them. Unlike Elijah, who did a lot of miracles, raising people from the dead, in fact. But Jeremiah, maybe in the sense that he is speaking words of lament, words of hope. Hard to say why people are saying Jeremiah here. Maybe they just want him to be Jeremiah because they have read Jeremiah. Or one of the other prophets, one of the other many, many, many prophets that existed. But the real important question in all of this is not what other people are thinking or saying. It is, what are you thinking and saying about me? Who do you say that I am? Jesus asks Peter. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Messiah, Christ, the Anointed One, the Son of the living God. Not enough to just be the Messiah, but... This divine origin of Jesus is attested to here by Peter. And he gets a blessing for it. And Jesus calls Peter by his original name, Simon, son of Jonah. Almost sort of doing one of those, I knew you back when, or if only we could, you could have seen how far you came back then. You've come a long way, Simon, son of Jonah. And he's saying that, Flesh and blood has not, has not revealed this to you. This is, isn't something you just came up with on your own. Ultimately, God has given him this word, his Father in heaven. And then Jesus switches his name again from Simon, son of Jonah, his humble origins from a fishing village on the coast of the Sea of Galilee, which for most people would be their final destination in life inheriting his father's business, working as a fisher, and then eventually retiring and then dying in that same village in Capernaum. But that is not where Peter has gone. He's joined up with Jesus in this itinerant ministry all around, and he will eventually go to the very seat of power where Caesar is, 
He is now in Caesarea Philippi, but one day he's going to be in Rome. And Jesus switches his name back to the name that he gave him, to Peter. On this rock I will build my church. His name means rock. And now we see why Jesus named him this a long time ago. We read on Sunday this lesson of Peter being named this way. And the answer wasn't told then why Jesus named him this. And now we know. Because Peter is the rock that the church will be built on. When God chooses rocks to build things, he chooses soft ones, not hard ones. He chooses Peter. Peter is sandstone. He's porous. He's terracotta. He's not one of the hard stones of life. He's not granite or marble. He's pretty shaky, in fact. And yet he is the rock that Jesus has said, I will build my church on you. And it'll be so strong, the church that is built on this rock, that even the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. The gates of Hades, the gates of a city, were the place where a lot of business was done. Government, it was sort of the seat of government. Um, for most of human history, um, there weren't really government buildings in the way that we think of them today. Actually, the closest thing to most government buildings in the ancient world that we have parallels today is the governor's mansion and the White House. Um, both of those places, really the White House more than the, the governor's mansion in Texas, um, function as a, an office. The Oval Office is there at the White House. And from the Oval Office, the president does his business. Uh, it's from the Oval Office that the president um, administers the executive branch of government. And this is more like the way the world was back in those days, that when um, you wanted to talk to somebody that was in charge, you went to their house, and that's where all that happened. And houses were palatial. They were big. They were like government buildings as well. But um, it was very personal, associated with that one ruler. Um, and that was true in the Roman world. And in the world of the Bible, for the most part, uh, when people met together, they wouldn't always meet in the house of the magistrate, but they would meet in the city gates. This is also where business transactions happened. The most famous of these is the story of Ruth, where uh, Boaz, her kinsman redeemer, who wants to marry her, goes and gives his shoe to uh, the other relative that had the right to marry her and inherit her property first, um, and I forget his name, but they conduct this business in the gates of the city. The city gates that have been excavated in this part of the world um, often have kind of a long hallway. I think it would today would be in medieval castles would be called a, a porticullis, um, sort of a two-gate system, and in the middle, or a sally port actually, a sally port. If you visit prisons today, you will often pass through a sally port to get in. A door locks behind you, and then you're in a chamber, a room, hallway, and then that door locks behind you, and you go into the next room. It's a chilling feeling to feel that door close behind us um, in those moments, pointing to the, the security of that place. And city gates were a lot like that. You could 
have that double layer of security. Um, the other closest place to this happens is at dog parks with the two gates. Um, that's technically a sally port. When you uh, go into that middle area, close the gate behind you, then go into the gate in the front. And this is where the business was done in a city. So it is the business of hell that will not prevail against the church. Um, and by business, the plots of hell will not prevail against the church. The, the, the strategy of a culture, of a community, of a city was done in the city gates. So when the, it says the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, it is the strategies, the schemes, the councils, the deals, the handshakes, the, all the little exchanges that go into conspiracies will not prevail against the church. And the church is not a thing. The church is a bunch of people. The church is not being built on bedrock. It is not being built on sand. It is not being built in a forest or in a field or on a mountaintop. It is being built on Peter. It is being built on a person. And Peter, of course, is inadequate to this task. But Jesus knows that. And he knows that it is the imperfections of the church that make it what it is. It is the humanness of the church that makes it holy. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This uh, power that is given to Peter is often depicted in our diocesan seal with the keys that are given to Peter, with the mitre of the office of bishop that is given to Peter, and certainly um, the Roman Catholic Church uh, that we used to be part of um, saw themselves as, as inheriting this specifically. But when Jesus said it to Peter, they were far away from Rome. They were there um, not far from where Jesus and Peter were born, speaking these words, because ultimately the church is built on the apostles and prophets, the Old and New Testaments. That is what the church is built on. Both the, the, the fixed witness of scripture in words that are written down that we read today, and in the living examples of Christian leaders throughout time and space, um, that the, the passing of the faith down from generation to generation is the job of the church. That was something during the pandemic that we tried to focus on, was just passing on the Christian faith to the people that come after us. That Accomplishing that during that time would, would be good enough. It would be enough. Ultimately, that is what Jesus has charged Peter with here under the seat of the Roman Empire. Eventually, it is Christianity that will overthrow the old order of the Roman Empire, that will be thrown out, cast down, and the, the humble witness of the church will be raised up. The church, though, as a human institution, embodies all the problems of humanity inside it. And if you've ever been close to a church like this one or any other, you know that the problems of humanity are embodied in it. Everything you find out there, you'll find in here. Everything you find in you, inside you, will be found in here, in this church. But that is what Jesus chose to build his church on. Anyone that says that Jesus didn't wasn't here to start a religion or something hasn't read this text. It's pretty clear here that Jesus 
plan to build this community, this gathering together of his disciples that will continue throughout time and space, um, that community will be built on Peter. And not because Peter is um, somehow uh, maybe the best suited for this job. Ultimately, God's calling is the empowerment. He says that very clearly. This is not coming from you, Peter. This is coming from God the Father inside in your life, telling you that you do have what it takes. God is always calling Peter to love. Peter is the one who the sheet of animals descends upon on that rooftop when he's taking a nap. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Rise, Peter, kill and eat, the voice says. And he says, God, you can't tell me to break the rules that I've kept all these years of keeping the dietary laws from the Torah, the book of Moses. You can't tell me to break those and I won't do it. And Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And, and God is not talking about food there. He's talking about the guy that's knocking on the door, Cornelius, a soldier, a Roman soldier, who wants to meet Jesus. And if Peter has a, a prejudice against someone from a different background, that is done away with in that moment. Peter is the perfect rock to build this church on because he's ready to open his arms in love to someone who's really different from him, someone that is sort of even a threat to him in many ways, this Roman soldier. Because that's where the church is built on. The church is built on the most open person in the world. And how did Peter become open to God's grace? How did he become uh, someone who was willing to make that shift to include Cornelius, this Gentile, into the community of Christ? It's because of his own failures, because of his own denying Jesus on the night he was betrayed during his trial. It was that Jesus forgave him, restored him, gave him a new start. It was all these moments that led to this moment of inclusion. As the Church of England and the Anglican Communion today um, make rulings about the inclusion of LGBTQ people inside the life of the church in the larger community. Um, we They follow this principle that we are not to exclude people that God has included. It's a dangerous thing to exclude people that God has already included in the gift of the Holy Spirit. Because these callings and gifts of God are irrevocable. They cannot be revoked. They are already in our communion, already in our community already blessing us, already part of things. So how could we exclude people that God has already included? And that is their question in the Church of England, the Anglican Communion. Um, it's a church, an answer, a question our church has answered and is still answering and doing um, our best, even with our failures, to continue this work of what God is doing in the world. Because God builds his church on you. God builds his church on people like Peter. And all the love that we have comes from those moments of failure, comes from those moments where we realized that we couldn't pull it off on our own, that we didn't have the adequate um, whatever it was that we thought we would have in life to make us successful. Ultimately, it comes from those moments of brokenness and failure and forgiveness. Forgiveness is what empowers Peter to preach that sermon on Pentecost. Forgiveness is the heart of what Jesus is calling Peter to do because you don't teach people how to forgive by telling them to do it. Um, you don't teach people to um, forgive by 
um, ordering them to do it or demanding them to do it in any way. Um, Peter learns about forgiveness by being forgiven. This is how he learns about forgiveness, how we learn about it. And so our learning about forgiveness comes from our experience of forgiveness. If we've ever been forgiven, then that is ultimately how we learn about it. And that is what the, that is the church that Jesus starts here with Peter. This church of failure, this church of denial, this church of restoration, this church of forgiveness, this church of witness to what Jesus has done, and then this church of inclusion that even includes this Roman soldier who's standing at the door. And ultimately, this church of sacrifice. Um, it is not in the Bible and Scripture, but church tradition tells us that Peter um, takes this this moment in time that he remembers where he was he witnessed to Jesus being the Messiah, the Son of God. And when it came to his own death, persecution was rising up, and um, he goes to be crucified as a punishment for being Christian and being a leader in the church. Um, that he insists that um, he should not be crucified the way Jesus was because he's not worthy. And so those cruel... Romans, as a joke, turn him upside down on the cross, and he's crucified upside down. Um, I can't think of a, a stronger witness to the faith than that, to say that I want to follow Jesus, but I'm not even worthy to do it. And that's the rock. That's a rock right there. Someone who has that kind of courage to say, I want to see Jesus again. I want to see him, I want to hold him, I want to touch him, I want to feel his love again, because he loved me when nobody else did. So thanks be to God for this confession. I hope and pray that you can feel it and witness to that truth of Jesus, because Jesus is witnessing to the truth in you. Amen. Simon Peter, first among the apostles, to confess Jesus as Messiah and Son of the living God. Keep your church steadfast upon the rock of this faith, so that in unity and peace we may proclaim the one truth and follow the one Lord, our Savior Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever.